0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started.
1: Shalom, shalom, friends. Welcome, welcome. I'm so happy to be here with all of you. Um, Let me go ahead. There we go. Thank you all for joining. I know we are going to have some more folks joining us soon. Um, very happy to be here. I think our, our partner um, is running a little bit late. Um, super happy to be here with Rabbi Shlomo. Rabbi Shlomo um, also requested that he could also give his his introduction. So I'm going to give him that uh, that ability. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today, Rabbi Shlomo.
2: Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to the Valley Baby Thrash for hosting this program, first of all. Um, and thank you all for coming, for joining today. Um, my name is Shlomo Levin, and I served as a rabbi for many years in the United States. And then recently, I also got a master's degree in international law and human rights from a wonderful program called the United Nations University for Peace in Costa Rica. And I wrote here, you can see I put it on the screen a Haggadah. It's called the Human Rights Haggadah. Uh, and what it does, is it points out human rights issues as they come up in the Passover story, giving a little bit of a secular source and a Jewish source, and most importantly, discussion questions to understand the values and the conflicting values behind each issue. And you wouldn't be surprised. Almost every human rights issue that's in the news comes up in the Haggadah, from slavery, from hard labor, to refugees when Jacob goes down to Egypt fleeing famine, from uh, reparations when the Israelites leave Egypt with wealth, and and so on. Everything uh, uh, just about is in there. Um, And I'm going to begin just in a moment. I'm going to point out we're going to talk today about one section of Magadah. I just want to mention one other, two other comments before we get started. One, One is, this class was originally scheduled to take place in October. And we postponed it because it's the beginning of the war, and we thought it wasn't the right time. And we had hoped that by now there wouldn't be a war and we would have moved on to a better situation of peace. I just want to recall that and remember that even though we've settled maybe a little more into the routine, we still remember the hostages and we still pray for peace in Israel and in Gaza, uh, first of all. And and second of all, the other thing I want to say about our class, turning back to our session today, is I, I believe very strongly when we talk about human rights, it needs to be discussion. Human rights means sharing different perspectives and different ideas, and I really don't intend to just lecture as I, I want to hear people's thoughts and people's ideas and responses as we go along. So what I'm going to ask is stay on mute unless you're speaking. If you'd like to speak, raise your Zoom hand. Let me call on you and then unmute. And then uh, I'll see if you, can a, if you can make sort of a, a, a short uh, comment, whatever it is. And if I have to, I might just in- interrupt you a little bit just to clarify. Well, let's go ahead. And what I want to do is focus today on something that's pretty well known right in the beginning of the Haggadah. And we say this at the start of the Seder, that this is the bread of affliction holding up the matzah. And we say, all who are hungry, let them come and eat. All in need, let them come and join our celebration of the holiday, and join in our Passover food and in our Passover feast. And I want to ask a very fundamental question. Is this a one second. Is this a statement of human rights values when we say that? Are we attempting to fulfill our human rights values because we believe everyone must receive, everyone is entitled to food as a basic necessity? Or should we understand this some other way? I'm not even going to ask how. I don't know. I'm not even going to comment on how. What do you think is going on here? Let me ask it another way. It's well known. It's a fact that in the world today, the earth produces enough calories to feed every single person. There's no question about it. When you do scientific calculations, you know how many calories are grown from how much corn, how much soybeans. There's plenty of calories. There's plenty of nutrition available to feed every person. So if some people don't have enough to eat, it's not because of a necessity. It's not because there's no other way. It's not because of scarcity. It must be because of some decisions, some actions we've taken about, how, or some system we've created for, for sharing the food unequally. Does that make it a human rights issue, per se, or is it still something else?
3: Definitely a human rights issue. Although it's a. It's... Well, Lauren, so... hi, hi. Go ahead human rights issue and um, just like housing and so many other things, and it's greed that's um, blocking the way for everyone to have okay. that
2: human right. Okay, Lauren says that uh, it's for sure a human rights issue. And then Lauren, as you say, rightly, if you say housing, if you say food, why stop there? Why not also talk about all basic necessities together? Food, clothing, shelter, health care, and those should all be rights. Okay. just when we just ask, raise your zoom hand if you can just so two people don't talk at once. Uh, that, any one other person, do you agree or disagree with that? Any other thoughts or comments? Does anyone think it's not a human right? Does anyone see any reason why food should not be a human right? Any downside to considering it a human right? Oh, uh, go ahead, Eddie, say something. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, just out of curiosity, wasn't this uh like put into vote and the United States voted against it? We'll come to that. Okay.
2: We'll come to that. <laughs> okay. Um the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I'll just keep it like this. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was voted on and passed by the United Nations General Assembly in 1948. So it's a uh, non-binding declaration. It can't be legally enforced per se, but it's come to be seen as very uh, influential, very authoritative thinking. This is Article 25 of the uh, Universal Declaration. Everyone has the right to a standard of living, adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing and medical care and necessary social services. Everything is included, all basic necessities and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or any other lack of livelihood and circumstances beyond his control. So I think it is fair to uh, uh, to say that the answer here is yes, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights clearly includes basic economic rights within the bundle, and as you can just sense also here, there's an awful lot of human rights included in the Universal Declaration. This is Article 25, so imagine uh, how much there is, but this is included in it. Okay, I want to just ask one more time: Can anyone see a um, a downside? Does anyone 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 oppose? Anyone think it shouldn't be? we really think it shouldn't be does anyone see a problem with calling basic needs a human
4: right it's not it's not a problem no. but if we um sorry i didn't raise my zoom hand
2: You're excused. does um, remember um, next time you're excused when...
4: i mean i'm i will need to change a lot of systems <laughs> to um it's interesting that it's like such a human right that it didn't like before seeing this invitation it didn't occur to me that it was a human right like it was so given um and in, in my mind but there we make such a big deal out of other human rights or is something a human right like um what decisions to make about our own bodies or um who we want to marry or like are these are these well i don't know civil right or human right, either way, like it's just so, um, it's so overlooked as a human. Let right. me
2: ask you a question. Just, let me ask you a question. I would ask everybody, don't let me ask you a question. If I would say human rights, what's the first right that would come to mind? Like if, if there's a lot of things you could call it, but what's the first thing you would think of as for sure the most fundamental of all the human rights? What do you think? Just first thing off the top of your head. The right to unlawful persecution. Unlawful persecution, right? I say food, Eddie says food again. There's one more I didn't catch in the chat that just flew by. Um, Okay, the point I want to make is sometimes the first thing that we think of about human rights, are more what you would call political rights, freedom of religion, freedom of expression Uh, Freedom from uh, the government can't, freedom from arbitrary government power. The government can't arrest me or detain me uh, with no reason. I can't be punished without first being put through a process of law. You know, these are the most basic, the right to vote, for example. These are sometimes, those political rights sometimes come to mind first, is my point. But then what people will argue is, what good our political rights, the right to assemble, the right to protest, all these kinds of things. What good is the right to assemble, to protest, to vote, to have religion if you're starving? You can't use these rights unless you have economic rights. So economic rights have to come first. That's the argument. Let me show you another source. This is a little bit before, actually, but in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights itself. And it sort of hints at a little bit of Article 22. Everyone is a member of society, has the right to social security and is entitled to realization through national effort and international cooperation in accordance with the organization and resources of each state, of the economic, social, and cultural rights indispensable for his dignity and the free development of his personality. I just want to throw in the right to work, to free choice of employment, to just and favorable conditions of work, and to protection against unemployment. What is the problem here? This is already hinting at a big problem. Notice the middle of Article 22. National effort, international cooperation, accordance with the organization and resources of each state and the freedom to choose your employment. What's the problem here? What's going on? I'll throw out a suggestion. Take a political right. It's a right to vote. It's a right to assemble. The right to freedom. Now, I know governments can plead security. Okay, you know, but besides security, can the government give an excuse for taking those away? What's a valid excuse for taking those away? Because they can't come up with one practically, aside from, you know, extraordinary security situations. When it comes to economics, what if the government pleads poverty and says, look, it's great to say everybody has the rights to food, clothing, and shelter. But the government can't afford it. We can't do it. And understanding just in theoretical terms, human rights are fundamentally an obligation on governments. Governments are responsible for fulfilling human rights. And so the governments essentially retain their, uh, uh, legitimacy, retain their legitimacy to the extent that they fulfill the human rights of their citizens, right? And the government says that's nice that everybody has economic rights. We're doing the best we can, but all we can do is very little. Now, if someone just said in the comments, tax the rich, and fine, you know, okay, you can always argue that a, a, a government could do that type of thing or could do more, argue about tax policy. Someone will come and say, we're a poor country. We can't do it. Someone could say that. A country could say that. Or a country could start to squabble about the tax code and all the problems, whatever. But one key distinction between economic and political rights is political rights, no excuses. No reason why people can't vote. You can't take away the vote from some class of citizens. There's no reason for that. No reason why people can't have freedom of religion. What business does the government have taking away freedom of religion? So we can define these as human rights in absolute terms. Whereas economic rights, you know, is there any society in the history of the world where every citizen has all their needs, food, clothing, and shelter? Is, Is that always attainable? You know, and, and so calling it a right may, may be very, very empty. Yeah, and th- that's one—that's uh, one issue here to think of. Yeah, we we call that aspirational. Maybe economic rights are more aspirational. The government should aspire to these things, but um, but but the expectation government will realize them might not be realistic. Erwin, go ahead.
0: Yeah, um, I think um, the key there is that it's it says according to the government. And there are different governments have different conceptions of what it means to vote and what it means. All these things are defined differently by different governments. Um, so you know, it's fine to make a general statement, but when it when it comes to actually making this real, it's all up to the specific states, according to to this document. Boy, I want to make a
2: comment about that. Sure, here's the thing all human. That means we're all equal. Fundamentally, human rights, you'd think the idea of human rights is they ought to be the same for comfort. It doesn't matter where I live. It doesn't matter my society. It doesn't matter my religion. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. The fact that I'm a human being, if something is a human right, because I'm a human being, I should be entitled to it. And suddenly, these economic rights are going to depend on the government's uh, uh, economic means and, and policies, and it's going to weigh economic decisions. And it cuts against equality—the the, the idea that human rights should should be independent of all of these external factors, leaving it up to the government. That's that's um,
1: that's an issue
2: here. I'm just going to share one more uh, uh, short uh, uh, source about this. Um, uh, while we're on that topic here, I'm going to share with you. Um, well, let me guys, something else. We also saw the right to work. Remember that source in the uh, in the um, Declaration of Human Rights is that everybody has the right to choose a profession according to their uh, desires and the right to choose their work and stuff like that. How's that going to go with economic rights? Is there a problem there? I'll read it to you. Remember, um, it said everyone has the right to work, to free choice of employment from a free choice of employment to just and favorable conditions of work and to protection against unemployment. How is that going to go with economic rights? I would suggest to you there might be a problem. Remember, human rights are a demand on the government. The government has to fulfill them. So what if the government says, look, we're responsible for making sure all of our citizens have food, have clothing and shelter, and then everybody runs around telling us what job they want to do. To trying to exercise their right to choose their employment. Everyone runs around deciding what they want to study. You know, uh, we can't have that here. We're responsible for, for, for this. We can't have, we don't have time for artists. We don't have time for authors. We don't have time for uh, uh, liberal arts majors. We need more dentists. We need more farmers. We need more minors. And the point is, when you give a government responsibility, you're going to have to give that government corresponding power. To fulfill that responsibility and those government powers may end up conflicting with you with personal freedoms you know we can't have it both ways go ahead Mark. I'm sorry if you raised your hand earlier i can see go ahead
3: no that's fine no i was just gonna say as noble as the idea is it's completely impractical right when if you're like you have uh, you want to be a doctor but you, you have absolutely no way that you could get through the course. Like, it's just not you, you just can't do it. You're not capable of it. You, you can't force uh, a university to take you. You can't force a college of medicine to take you. And even with the job, I mean, you could try and even out things so that there's no discrimination because of color, religion, gender, but you can't force an employer to hire someone. I guess the best you can do is in the civil service and expand, I'm Canadian by the way, and expand the civil service. So my ideas are very different than Americans. Um, So that you, you can hire as many people as possible and the special people for minorities who otherwise won't be hired, assuming that they have the credentials and the capabilities. But unfortunately it's just, it's not practical
2: right and that's become the question like i said when people have the freedom to choose their employment to pursue their dreams whatever they are this is going to conflict with other societal priorities and may jeopardize the uh the the gross domestic product you know which would go up if everybody was directed into where they are most valuable in society you know we don't have and the point is this became to be honest, this became sort of a communist. And when when the when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was drafted, this was a big dispute amongst different blacks, but the communist bloc was all in favor of this. Exactly. We're gonna take charge, the government is in charge of the economy, the government is in charge of providing bread for the citizens, and the government is gonna tell everybody what to do. No more freedoms for everybody to pursue their dreams and to and do what they want. We don't. We don't. We don't. We, that conflicts with, with the government's responsibility with the rights of others. And you dreaming of becoming a whatever is conflicting with other people's economic rights. You know, those things don't always go together. All right, I wanted to sort of finish up this this train of thought with one other source, which is people that um, support economic rights as indivisible with political rights today, I will tell you in truth, I think is the trend in human rights law today, have kind of realized, I think, that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a bit of a, an overreach. It was too much of a grab, and trying to require governments to actually provide this is just not viable. It's too much. So they they, they took it back a little bit. And let me read you um, the Office of the United Nations, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and this is just their website where the the current website where they explain what the rights to food in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights means. And this is what the today, the the Office of the United Nations Human Rights High Commissioner says, accessibility. Food must be affordable. Individuals should be able to have an adequate diet without compromising on other basic needs, such as school fees, medicines, or rent. Food should be accessible to the physically vulnerable, including children, sick people, people with disabilities, and the elderly. Food must also be available to people in remote areas, to victims of armed conflicts or natural disasters, and to prisoners. Do you see here a, a, a change? I would call it a change. Anyone sees a change? Like what? Did, we started off with everybody having the right to food, and now it's the right to what exactly? What do you think? Someone raises a hand, Lauren. Ahead,
3: sorry for monopolizing. Um, this is the right to accessible, affordable food, wh- which is a different kind of concept. But they made it completely universal. Whether you're in a war situation or whatever, every human being should be able to
2: have easy access to food. Yeah, That's not well, under easy this understanding. Yeah, under this understanding, like, well, what does the government have to do is the government pull off the hook a little bit go ahead Jess
4: to me it's saying like people have the right to be able to pay their bills because in it, like it's saying food food should not compromise things like school fees medicines or rent so that is like going above and beyond that like who whoever is the United Nations is saying people should be able to figure should have the right to have their basic needs I met. I want to, to focus
2: on the word accessibility. I want to focus on the word accessibility because I think that was the key here is that the responsibility of government sort of goes from making sure that everybody has their needs met to everybody has the ability to have access to being able to have their means and their needs met. You know, so the point being is food, not do they have food, but is it accessible? Like, and this also brings up the issue of personal responsibility. What if the government wants to say something like this? Say, hey, we've done our job here of, of, of helping our citizens, but some of our citizens won't do anything. They won't help themselves. We're not their babysitter. We're not their nanny, their mommy, you know. So what What does what the government, say? we've made it accessible. Jobs are accessible. Social security is accessible. Food is accessible. It's not a food desert. It's not, you know. Uh, But that's that's the end of government responsibility there. We're not making sure everybody has their basic needs. We're just creating a society in which people can succeed at meeting their needs if they want or if they try or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, Lauren, go ahead one more time.
3: So this, as a Canadian, this really comes up because we have remote areas, mostly um, uh, First Nations Reserves, that are very remote, that only have like ice roads in the winter and now that's melting and it's a problem and you can only fly in. So food is really difficult to get. Fresh fruit and vegetables are nearly impossible and they cost a fortune. And I mean, I worked at one point up in Moussigny which is pretty far north and I, I was shocked at the prices of things. And of course the cheapest stuff was like the sugary, stuff that was the worst for the First Nations people because they tend to be diabetic. Um, and yeah. and probably Canadian government should really be subsidizing it and, and ensuring yes. that they get proper nutrition.
2: That's, I think, exactly what the High Commissioner is saying, is that the government is responsible for making food accessible including the people in remote areas and you have to build an ice road and of course they can't grow food you know in the middle of the winter the government has to make it accessible to them but the government doesn't have to go house to house to make sure everybody ate their vegetables you know that that's that everyone has that that's too much to demand of the Here's what I want to do I want to switch gears a little bit look at a Jewish sense. I want to show you my mom's realm uh, and let's see what he let's see what his view is here. And I took this page right out of it. Well, pardon me, it's not the round, but I apologize. It takes from the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish. So it says like this. It's a positive commandment to give tzedakah, according to tzedakah, meaning charity, to help the poor, and so forth, according to one's ability. And we must be very careful about this, because it can even lead to bloodshed should a beggar die while waiting for his sustenance. And we all understand, you know, what that means. If someone is... But here's the thing. How much should we give a poor person? The answer, whatever he lacks, how? If he's hungry, feed him. If he needs clothing, clothe him. (laughs) If he has no household utensils, buy them for him. Even if he was accustomed to riding a horse with a servant running before him when he was wealthy, and then he became poor, buy him a horse and a servant. So too for everyone, according to their needs. So let me ask you a question. What is the perspective here? This is, it comes from the Talmud. It's also in Maimonides. It's also in the Code of Jewish Law. What is the perspective here on charity? Of course, this is one voice in the Jewish tradition. We know the Jewish tradition has many voices, speaks with many voices. But what is, what is here? Are we seeing a human rights perspective here? Or what do we see? Any comments from anyone? <laughs> we give them whatever they need. Uh, utensils if they need utensils food if they if they were wealthy and then they became poor we raised their standard of living up to when it was when they were wealthy because that's what they're accustomed to is that sort of in keeping with the universal declaration of human rights with the high commissioner of human rights is that something different Laura?
3: i'm sorry <laughs> nobody else is standing up but... um it's it's above and beyond Really, I was totally with it until it said, well, if he was born to a rich family and he was used to a servant, you should give him a servant. Like all the race makes sense. And it's probably even doable. I remember when I lived in Israel in the 80s and it doesn't exist anymore. Now there's hungry people there. There was subsidized food. You could go to the Makala. There were subsidized eggs, subsidized frozen chicken, subsidized pitot and milk. You could manage on it, so like no matter how poor you were, you had food, and the Sachnoot at that time provided a poor apartments. Like it really, really was in accordance with the halachic um, definition of of charity and helping to get I mean, work. Was,
2: you think you think what the Sachnoot was doing in Israel is what the Shulhan said? I
3: I really believe so. Now that I read that, it <laughs> seems to be. Unfortunately, they had a capitalistic revolution and everything changed, but there was a time that um, it was like
2: that. I want to focus on like this. What the Shulchan Aruch just said, what we just read as a Jewish source, is that it's similar to what we read in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or not? Is it something different? It's about. budget. Do you think it's sort of going means to go above and beyond is the way you'd phrase it. Like I want it's a good way to put it. And I want to come back to that in just a minute. It's above and beyond. Okay. Any other comments still on that? Is it the same? Is it different? Above and beyond. And what is above and what, any other comments there? Thought I saw a couple of hands.
4: Jess. Above and beyond to me suggest. I mean I agree with you, but it suggests like something really lovely and positive the phrase above and beyond whereas i would say the servant and potentially the horse but i don't know because that's you know transportation
2: the servant extreme, like, saying if he's used to having a servant in front of him on a horse he has to give him a servant and a horse that's pretty above and beyond i think, I
4: think well, well it's, it's beyond, not beyond. it's more overboard like it's not I'm, i don't i'm not comfortable with that part <laughs>
2: Mm -hmm. why aren't you comfortable what's uncomfortable
4: Um, i mean
2: obviously one question is going to be and this i think the shohan would respond is if you can't afford it obviously you should give one person their basic food before you give the other guy his horse i think you everybody understands that but is there anything else that makes you uncomfortable
4: Mm, i don't know i need to think about it more but i i my gut reaction is that if we're going to give everyone a servant who used to have a servant, then there's plenty of people who never had food and we won't be able to afford to give them food. So, um, okay. but I, I don't, maybe there is something deeper on, that's uncomfortable. I need to think about it.
2: You know, I didn't quote, uh, the whole universal declaration of human rights, but the, the, the key opening statement, and I think the key underpinnings of everything to do with human rights is the, the belief that human beings are fundamentally equal. You know, it doesn't again, we're all in different, born in different... Those are accidents of birth that so we're coming to different circumstances, different cultures, and some, we, you know, we all understand. But that there are some basic things that unite us all. Because we are human, there are some things we must have, and we're all equal on this planet, you know, and, and don't divide us and I, I sense just maybe that's what's bothering you about the Shulhadars here, is that the fundamental starting point there doesn't seem to be that we're all equal. It seems to be, well, everybody's coming from a different place, and the goal of Stukka is to put everybody back where they used to be. Not to put everybody in the same place, but to put everybody where they used to, Everyone's not going to be treated the same. According to the Shulhadar, everybody's not treated the same. How you're treated depends on These uh, other factors, these accidents of birth depends on your economic status, depends on your prestige, and and, and we're not treating everybody the same anymore. And the question is, I would argue that's not a human rights perspective, that a human rights perspective on charity would have to come from a place of equality, first of all. The way it's said in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, every person. Has the right to the following thing. And going as you put it on above and beyond, well, above and beyond is problematic because if it's not for everybody, if we go above and beyond for one, where's that another one? Now, let me make one other, let me just one other question. Um, if the Shulchan Aruch is not coming from a human rights perspective to the matter of Tzedakah, could anyone get get, get a sense of what perspective it might be coming from? If this isn't about uh, if the Shulchan Aruch isn't saying to help the poor because the poor are entitled to their basic necessities, because everybody's a little bit different here, or, 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 what are we doing? But why, why would we say that? Why would we say restore everybody to where they were? What could be the motivation for that? Like, what could be the thinking behind the Shulchan Aruch? I am mean, asking us to speculate a little bit. I mean, we could do a little more research in Jewish sources, too. But in the meantime, just asking us to speculate. Lawrence is human dignity but again if it's about human dignity why aren't we all the same why does someone who used to be rich need a horse uh, if a horse is necessary for dignity then doesn't everybody need a horse why, why are we treating people uh what's going on i mean what could be behind that i don't think it's a belief that we're all not equal necessarily i don't think it's like a a caste type thing i wouldn't say that but what what, what is going on but to think about other Maybe other frameworks or other motivations for it's that are not human rights motiv- motivated. The separate issue here, another concern we might have, is very selfish almost from the perspective of the person who's doing uh, uh, the helping. that yeah. I mean, if someone becomes impoverished and we don't help them, uh, if someone's basic needs are not. Or if someone's not, if someone's what they perceive to be their needs is not being met. status is not being respected, whatever it is, what is likely to be the result of that? What could happen? Rebellion, uh, social upheaval. Uh, all these kinds of problems, meaning if someone is if someone's basic needs are not being met, they're likely to resort to crime. They're likely to, uh, to to whatever, do, you know, antisocial behaviors. If someone is dissatisfied, bitterly is embittered and bitterly dissatisfied with their lot in life, they'll become uh, uh, a yeah, sickness and death to them. But, I mean, what is the consequences for people who are wealthy, who are know uh, you know, in luck at this time or whatever it is, it is that if we don't help poor people. We're going to have societal uh, problems, or you know, problems, political problems, social upheavals. We're going to have crime. We're going to have uh, people have yeah, violence, revolution. We're going to have people resorting to illegal activities. Um, uh, you know, things that we don't want. And we might understand here, this is a very different perspective on economic rights. We might say it's important to make sure everybody has their basic necessities. Forget human rights, because it's in the interest of society in order to have stability, in order to have social stability, and and all that kind of stuff. And that's what's going on here. And that's why we're okay with treating people differently. You know, because it's it's it, it, we're we're not. This is sort of a band aid to make sure nobody gets too upset, nobody gets too hurt, so everybody will uh, uh, will be satisfied. No one will complain too much. So we, we treat people based on uh, on their personal situation, something like that. You know, it's a very very different way of looking at things than um equitable instead of equal. Um, okay, maybe I don't know if it's equitable even. I, I don't know, but we're looking at things from a much more utilitarian. Uh, perspective, I would say. And, and of course, the Jewish perspective is not monolithic. There are many different sources in the Talmud and Jewish. But I just point this out that this is another totally separate way of looking at the problem, a separate philosophy, separate way of looking at charity, uh, which is not a human rights lens, I would argue. Let me ask you another question. And I know this is very broad here. And and we can't, you know, we we can't just just a quick reaction to it. We can't go too much because it's too broad to try to pin it down. Think about our society in the United States. I know we have some Canadians here. I don't know if anyone's from another country. We're all familiar with the United States, let's say. And then Canada probably puts into the same mold. What What is the view of the government of the United States, do you think, about economic rights? I mean, what does our society say? The United States Constitution certainly includes a lot of political rights. We have the Bill of Rights. What is the position of the United States government? Does the United States government feel obligated to meet the uh, economic needs or rights of its citizens? Do you think? By the way, the United States government did um, uh, join the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Voted through did you want to
0: speak? This is is actually a very present political issue in the United States. There's no single United States government position on this. We have policies, programs in the United States that speak directly to the right to food. We have SNAP. We have uh, yeah. children, uh, the, the WIC program. Um, we have a concern about um, hunger. Um, and um, different political positions advocate differently. Some positions advocate, no, we shouldn't give them that unless we can require them to, to work because they're lazy. Um, and um, This has been a hot political issue in the United States for at least the last couple of decades and going up to the present day. So, you know, the constitution can be interpreted in lots of different ways. I don't think it's a constitutional issue. I think it's a political issue uh, here in the United States and it goes back and forth.
2: Well, you're right for no one United States and there's many political figures that have the different positions, you know, the bit about work requirements maybe has to do a little bit with accessibility. You know, saying, look, like, the government is responsible for making food accessible. That means that if someone wants to, uh, if employment, that means people have the opportunity to avail themselves of employment, which which they can do, and to earn the money that they need to acquire their basic assets. The government isn't obligated to supply it uh, for free. That might be a way of looking at it, whereas others would say, no, it's really not accessible. You know, you have to understand, uh, um, you know, the, the obstacles people face and, and um, and so forth. I think we saw this quite a bit with regards to the debate about um, Obamacare in particular. I want to share with you a source here. I want to share with you a document. Um, and this goes back to the Trump administration. Mike And to some extent, I think you might see this as a little bit of a Republican-Democrat issue or, or Uh Mike Pompeo was the Secretary of State uh, for Donald Trump. And Pompeo organized a committee Uh, an esteemed committee of United States experts on human rights to compile a document that would set out the United States' policies and priorities regarding human rights issues in general, Uh, with the idea of resetting or recalibrating the United States' approach to human rights issues on the international uh, scene. And I'm going to share. It was a very uh, a lengthy report, and the report made great efforts, by the way, to be bipartisan, constantly quoting. Uh, uh, he was for Trump's Republican, constantly quoting Democratic figures as well. Let me share with you just a little excerpt from Trump's uh, report, which speaks to the United States in a very interesting way. The report of the Commission on Unalienable Rights, and this was delivered in 2020 uh, at the request of Mike Pompeo, and like I said, a lot of. Renowned university professors who are, of course, friendly to the Trump administration or friendly to the Republican Party, uh, took role of this. So I'm going to share with you uh, a short section of this here. Relation of civil and political rights, civil and political rights being those well-known uh, 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 human rights like the right to vote, the rights to, to, to gather, the rights of freedom of expression, freedom of religion, and so forth, as opposed to economic and social rights. This is what it says. The Universal Declaration, referring to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that we saw in the beginning here from 49, the Universal Declaration's weaving of civil and political rights together with economic, social, and cultural rights into an integrated whole, which is exactly what it does listing everything, poses a certain challenge for the United States. Unlike the Universal Declaration, And unlike the majority of constitutions of the world that have adopted since the early to mid-20th century, the U.S. Constitution does not generally recognize, let alone entrench, economic and social rights. Throughout the Cold War, the United States emphasized the commitment to civil and political rights almost exclusively, while rejecting the notion championed by the Soviet Union of the preeminence of economic and social rights. Since the end of the Cold War, a consistent aspect of U.S. human rights policy across every presidential administration, regardless of political party, has been U.S. reluctance to recognize economic and social rights as an integral part of the canon of international human rights. Even though the, the, the one fly in the United States did vote for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says economic rights are just as important, but even though the U.S. delegation pledged wholehearted commitment to those rights when the Universal Declaration was adopted in 1948, we didn't really mean it, and the United States doesn't really recognize economic rights as on the same level as um, political rights. That's the position of... Uh, um, of Pompeo's uh, commission and, and his view and the view of Trump. And I think fair to say in the view of the Republican Party to the extent that it can speak as a cohesive uh, philosophy, that, that seems to be their view. Is that surprising to anyone? What do you think? Not a surprise if that's what the Republicans say. I see, I see people shaking their heads, no, not a surprise. Do you agree with it, though? The question is: Is this right? Do we agree with it? I see you shake your head. Also, what do you think about that? Okay, if, I'm going to share it. All right, Lauren, say, go ahead. Just go ahead and say something.
3: Just as a Canadian, I find it so bizarre that the U.S. doesn't have universal health care. It's it's the only Western democracy to not have universal health care. And when I've argued with Americans about it. I get completely ridiculous things like, "Well, shall we give colored TVs to everybody?" Uh, "No, you don't die without one." But yeah, you know, it just—it—it's it, beyond my I, imagination. It
2: just, okay, well, and there you go. Well, I want to show you, I think that's right here. Remember, that was a very bitter partisan fight. The Democratic Party's been pushing the the, the for health care, you know, universal health care and so forth. Uh, the Republicans have been opposing it to the nail. Trump wanted to repeal the Obamacare. You know, I, I understand there's politics to it. I understand he hates Obama. You know, I said, but fundamentally, I would suggest the Republican Party does not believe that uh, so meeting the essential needs of citizens is the job of government, and they're saying it right there. The fundamental responsibility of government is political rights, freedom to vote, freedom from discrimination, the right to assemble. Economic rights are very second fiddle, very, very distant, and not uh, a, a key responsibility of government at all. Hannah, did you want to chime in? Hannah, did you want to say something?
5: Yes, I Go do. Ahead. I mean, I'm so I'm very biased. Everything that the Republicans say for me is crappy and nasty and evil. But there is a ve- it's it's missing the elephant of just mentioning youth. I mean, freedom of uh, uh, speech won't uh, give you health. Won't give you food. People need food and people need health. And it I, I'm right. from Israel, so you know I just it drives I'm so angry, so so angry. And I yeah. see I I see that it gets worse and worse. You know, I, no, oh, I, Hannah, I, yeah yeah yeah.
2: but that's the other side of it exactly what is the good of political rights if people don't have health care what's the good of it if you don't have food you know what's the good if you don't yeah, but what the Republicans are saying, and roof the, over the-, the other-
5: Excuse me, roof further head. Don't tell me people yeah, tell me no, 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 like yeah, yeah, want to be needs,
2: outside. Food, clothing, shelter, health care. Yeah. But the other side's going to say to you, they're going to say, yeah, but you don't want us interfering in the economy like the Soviet Union. You don't want us directing everybody and telling this one build a dam, this one build a mine. You know, you don't want that.
5: There is, there is so, a middle uh, way. There is a middle way. It's not this, and it's not this. So I
2: understand. The trick is sometimes the middle way is hard. Uh, It can be very, very hard uh, to find. There are, but- But I want to show you one more thing.
5: Yeah, wait a minute. I I also think that- You see the Democrats still think about about health, about food. And I think the ones that have all this idea, great idea of political freedom are the ones that have a lot of money and they're so detached from the the real problems of just regular people and, and- I think it's awful and
2: it just, you know, Hannah, that's an excellent point. And that's that's a very excellent point is if you would shove a microphone into someone's face and say to them, what does human rights mean to you? You know, someone who is wealthy and and has what they need may very well say human rights means that my vote should count and there shouldn't be gerrymandering or something like that. Human rights means uh, that there shouldn't be discrimination in college admissions or whatever it is. Now, find somebody who is penniless, someone who's starving, someone who can't meet those days. human rights means food. Human rights means access to transportation, means a job. And our, those perspectives make a very – those situations make a very big difference on how we perceive human rights. You're absolutely right. It's very easy to sit with your full stomach in, in a house with a garage and say – Human rights are political and economic rights. Oh, you know that's just something we aspire to. Whereas if you're in a different situation, you know then, then you say economic rights come uh, come first. I just want to go back to one in one other. Uh, and remember remember to mute yourself when you're done, so we don't get that thing. Don't get an echo. One other thing is one one thing other common people will make about it is even if you believe. That economic rights are important and that you can are, are primary important. It can be very difficult sometimes for government to make those calls and to decide what should the minimum wage be, what should safety standards be. You know, sometimes what the most important thing we can do is to let people advocate for themselves. And the way you do that is with political rights. Meaning when you give when you if you to give people the right to unionize, for example, then suddenly Higher wages and workplace safety become something that they can fight for, and they can fight for it according to their own values. If what they see as most important, they can set the priorities. When you, if you establish something like a social safety net, for example, a uh, social security, unemployment benefits, for example, a benefit of unemployment benefits not just does it help the person who is needing it, but unemployment benefits take uh, do a ton to get rid of abusive place situations because then people are free to leave if people know they can get unemployment benefits for example then they'll leave a toxic workplace they'll leave an abusive workplace and we won't have what they call today modern slavery well you're not going to stay in that situation if you have options but if you live in a society that doesn't have options then you don't so one one way of looking at it is political rights ought to be most important we might want to prioritize political rights not because economic rights are less important but granting people political rights can be a means to letting people assure themselves their own economic rights okay can i going to go ahead for 1 second that yes. I want to show us one more source for I on.
5: just want to say one thing you also talk about minimum wage we should talk about living wage minimum mm-hmm. wage is not it doesn't put it doesn't put food on the table and then doesn't help them to be healthy It has to be living age. And whenever I hear this, you know, $15, they increase it to 18, I said, this is slavery. It's just different way of slavery, I'm sorry i'm so
2: okay. excited yeah. <laughs> no it's my living wage that's all i'm saying all i'm saying is one approach is to let the government for the government to decide what should be the the minimum wage what, what people have to be paid another way to look at it is you know if that's an uphill battle that's too hard politically if maybe and it's true it's very hard should it be different in different places should there be a different minimum wage for teenagers you know everyone can have their own views but if you give people political rights to advocate for themselves, you give them a the social safety net, you give them a union, whatever it is, then those things will be advanced that way, even without the government passing legislation. Erwin, I see Erwin asks, is there's a definitive Jewish view, and on that I'm going I'm to say, you know, I think it's always a safe bet to say no. There are so many different voices in the Jewish tradition. I don't think it's fair on something like this to come and say there's a definitive Jewish view. But what I showed you in the Shulchan Aruch is very central, I think, to to, to Jewish thought. You know, it's a very um, central—this is Amnesty International. So Amnesty, of course, is a uh, human rights group. And this is their response to Mike Pompeo's document where he said that political rights are primary and economic rights are are secondary. And in all fairness—I didn't want to go into it here— But there are some other real issues that uh, uh, Amnesty objected to with Pompeo's report, because Pompeo's report put a lot of um, what you would call social issues on the side as well. Pompeo's report said, uh, you know, um, marriage rights, you know, homosexual rights, um, a lot lot of a lot of those what he calls social issues. He already tried to also try to take out of the human rights category, which Amnesty is reacting to uh, uh, as well. But here you go. This is me. This is what Amnesty says. back. In August of 2020, Mike Pompeo's Commission on Unalienable Rights presented its final report, which creates a hierarchy of human rights, meaning puts a couple of political rights, remain basic political rights, first, and everything else second, and it undermines the United States' commitment to international human rights standards, treaties, and agreements. The report sets out to define which rights are unalienable. Elevating religious liberty and the right to private property, the very undertaking of the commission in this report attempts to negate decades of human rights progress. The United States government cannot unilaterally redefine which human rights will be respected and which will be ignored. The report is falsely premised on the idea that a proliferation of rights has undermined the legitimacy and credibility of the human rights framework. It seeks to ignore treaties to which the United States is a party, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and others, like other treaties he's refers to, and decades of U.S. foreign policy and multilateral negotiations that represent international consensus. Here's their recommendations, their talking points. Human rights are universal, indivisible, interdependent, and underrelated, including economic rights. We cannot create a hierarchy of rights. The United States cannot unilaterally redefine which human rights will be respected and which will be ignored. The commission should, has undermined decades of human rights progress, and the United States should be a leader rather than carving it out. And the recommendation is to explicitly reject the commission, its reports, its government's retreat, and, the, and then reject everything view uh, The whole thing is bad and reject it all. <laughs> so here you go. So let me just sum up, because we're just about out of time, is what we began is with a statement in the Haggadah, that all who are hungry, let them come and eat. And I asked the basic question, is that a statement of human rights values, or is it something else? And we saw, according to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it clearly is the statement of human rights values. But... Then it becomes a little bit more tricky. Governments can't necessarily provide for everyone. Maybe they can just make it available for everyone. But then maybe political rights are actually important because if we give political rights, it can help people uh, meet their economic rights and we shouldn't prioritize political rights so much. And then we saw maybe a, a different way of looking at it from the Shulchan Aruch that maybe we shouldn't even take a human rights view to this. Maybe it's more about making sure society is cohesive and it functions. And then uh, uh, we saw that in the United States, that is still economic rights are not accepted, certainly by all the political parties. And it's very, um, it's tough going for that. Okay, so let me just close by saying this, this is the human rights hangara that I put together. So what we just did is really what this Haggadah is aimed for. To understand that there's multiple sides, competing values behind every human rights issue. And as issues come up, my goal on this Haggadah is to show a couple of sources and then to ask discussion questions, which just help sort of explain what the frictions might be and to ask us some, some questions to guide us to helping us discuss those values and begin to come up with our own positions, with the understanding the human rights values does not necessarily lead to one particular political uh, or social action position. There's many different legitimate uh, views that we could have, and to help us think a little better about these sources and to come up with our own uh, uh, views. So I have this Haggadah if anyone's interested in Pesah, you can get it at Zaraz or, or on Amazon, or you can. there's a website, HR Haggadah, human rights, HR hrhagada.com, where you'll also be able to buy haggadah and also I blog human rights issues as they pertain in particular to israel and the jewish community and you're welcome to see that uh too okay so it's exactly an hour so i'm going to if anyone has a final comment or question or i'm going to turn it back over
1: thank you so much if anybody okay. has a thank quick you. question <laughs> you're getting some thank yous on the chat there rabbi Shlomo. okay
2: now thank you everyone for participating and like i said this isn't a conclusion but hopefully there's something to think about and a little bit more of an understanding of where different people might be coming
0: from as we discuss these issues
1: Thank you so much, everybody, for joining. And thank you again, Rabbi Shlomo. Have an amazing day, everybody. Take care.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for
2: listening.